Welcome to the Daily Horror Habit, the horror movie review podcast for horror fans and fanatics alike. I'm your host, Jay Krieger, delivering horror movie reviews and discussions of both classic and current films every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday for your twisted pleasure. Please be aware that episodes may include spoilers, and as always, I hope you enjoy. Welcome to another installment to my year-long Masters of Horror celebration, in which I'm joined by a guest every Friday to chat about one of their favorite films from our month's featured director. For the month of May, we're honoring the haunting horrors of Mike Flanagan, the man behind such films as Hush, Oculus, and countless Stephen King adaptations, such as today's Focus, that being the horror odyssey Dr. Sleep, in which we meet back up with Dan Torrance, played by Ewan McGregor, and see firsthand that the traumatic events that unfolded at the Overlook Hotel have had lingering effects. Now, struggling with alcoholism and drifting up the East Coast, Doc is at a crossroads. Though when he discovers a teenager named Abra, who shares his supernatural ability known as the Shine, he sets out to save her from the grasp of a cult known as the True Knot, who feeds off of others' Shine. And joining me to tackle Flanagan's behemoth horror undertaking is BloodyDisgusting.com's video game editor and co-host of the weekly horror gaming podcast Safe Room, his returning friend of the show, Neil Bolt. Neil, welcome back to the show, man. It's been a while. Though we have worked together in a different capacity, it has been a while on this side of things. So. Yeah, I'm excited to talk uh, horror movies with you for a change instead of horror <laughs> games. Uh, another another love that uh, we both share. But today we're talking about Mike Flanagan's Doctor Sleep, a film that seems monumental and almost insurmountable to talk about, just in terms of leaps and bounds. The idea, like you would have to tackle to make a follow-up to The Shining which seems so improbable and illogical and maybe not the best task for a majority of horror filmmakers, uh, whether they were capable of doing so or not. But I guess before we get into Dr. Sleep, kind of, what was your first introduction to Mike Flanagan? Um, it was Hush, um, which I think was on Netflix at the time. It's like, you know, I had no sort of knowledge of him beyond that. And I think it was after he'd done other things like Oculus. But uh, yeah, I watched that and you know, if for anyone doesn't know uh, it hasn't come up yet um you know it's about a deaf lady who has a home invasion happen to her and you know it's like um yeah that resonates with me as I, i've said on letterboxd recently about uh, the film sound of metal you know it's like i i'm half deaf myself um so deafness in, as a storyline is interesting to me you know it's like I, I i appreciate when it's done well i think flanagan really did such a good job in conveying it there, you know, for, for what it was and made it an entertaining thing without it being like goofy in, in what it could have been. And so yeah, I sort of paid attention to that. And I suppose, you know, like everyone, you start noticing what else he's done. And I think he has a natural feel to the way he does things that makes him the perfect sort of candidate to make Stephen King stuff work on the screen you know, he, he'd done it before you know before Doctor Sleep of course and with Gerald's game and uh, that, so it's uh, he, he'd done it and that immediately was like okay you know if anyone's going to take a crack at Doctor Sleep which is a book that I really like you know it's like I, I, The Shining itself is just you know I'm sure we'll bring it up a lot in this because uh, the film and the book it all intertwines so well with, with this and you can't avoid it and I think Flanagan finds the best of both worlds with Dr. Sleep in terms of adapting both styles but he is 
the closest I think we've ever had to King's voice in in movies, you know, mm. like that. And he's not showy. He's not, you know, he's not you know, overzealous with stuff. He, he he does stuff as it should be. You know, he he isn't going for shock value and silliness. And he he's you know as much as he's good at adapting king you know he's not doing that part of king that was on cocaine and just writing whatever <laughs> fucking nonsense came into his head at the time you know he's uh right. reining it in and disappointing as that may be for some people that he hasn't done everything that king did you know dr sleep is like the perfect thing for him i suppose because it is the clean king sort of uh coming back to a book that had very much was ingrained in his own troubles you know the, the shining and the dealing with jack Tor torrance's alcoholism uh is stephen king's problems you know it is they are incarnate in that book and this feels like his sort of uh aa meeting in a way uh his reckoning of that and it permeates throughout the film throughout the book and yeah, it, it, it felt special in that regard to have it because, you know, hard enough for Mike Flanagan to have to work on a sequel to The Shining, the film, you know, um, and, you know, he doesn't go to try and continue the so-so uh, TV film version. He he goes for Kubrick's version to from the off, you know, King himself to follow up The Shining like that, as he did with a character and show that it hadn't been a happy ending for Danny and how things had really just gone downhill and how he, as much as he tried to avoid the same fate his father had, that he, he's going down that path further and further. You know, it, it, it's just really didn't think I'd end up liking the film. I really didn't. I thought it would be difficult to do. And because it was based on Kubrick's, you know, version a lot of the time, which, you know, King notoriously hates, um, <laughs> that was where I was slightly concerned because you know, Flanagan works best doing King's work as King intended. And yet he's trying to aim for the Kubrick side of things. And I can see why that can have problems somewhere in the film where it doesn't always gel. Mm. I think he does a really good job of doing both you know, and melding into one film. It feels very much like a Stephen King story, whilst also feeling like a continuation of Kubrick's uh, different vision. Absolutely, yeah. And I think Hush being your first introduction is such a great introduction to Flanagan's mm. style, right? Because, yeah, we all know him as the de facto Stephen King adaptator right now, right? I mean, he has had a proven track record with adapting King's voice to the screen. And yet I find that his independent films or rather his original films they really strike at the element of his king adaptations that is strongest which is and it sounds so simple to say it's like this idea that the people are always front and center yeah. and they're so well fleshed out and they feel like real people whereas it's real people in a spectacle whereas king a lot of the time i find he wrote these larger than life spectacles and at one point or another the characters themselves feel like a continuation of that spectacle in a way that well, not to try to knock Stephen King, which would be, <laughs> uh, which would, yeah, would be a whole nother uh, error in judgment on my part. But the idea that Flanagan's really able to make people feel authentic and genuine and then put them into these 
very creative horror uh, scenarios that King obviously had crafted, I find that that is what makes films like Dr. Sleep, which seem insurmountable from the outside, it makes it work so well in a way that I think we both probably, and fans in general probably feared, right? This disconnect between, okay, he's doing a sequel to Kubrick's version, but how much of King's voice is gonna be lost in that? Yeah. Or vice versa, right? This idea, trying to balance so many things on top of having his own flair and not just being like, well, this is just gonna be a combination of two people's voices, right? It's really three voices melded into one film in a way that it just, it surprises me every time I watch it. And of course, I believe you did as well. Did you watch the director's cut? Oh yeah, I've only ever watched the director's cut. It's like, um, again, something about King's stuff, when, when I like it, I, I don't mind uh, as long as it can be, because I'm so used to that sort of epic storytelling. I think even with, um, the recent adaptations of it they still didn't quite feel right to me because it wasn't long enough for, for that story you know the stand tv series just didn't quite get it it still felt rushed for what it was and it, it's it's so rare that something you know it's normally his short stories that end up being adapted best because they fit a movie length thing that's why the Shawshank Redemption and uh, Stand By Me or something like Green Mile that was serialized you know and, and made in several mm. books that was like probably to me the first example of Stephen King, Stephen King's longer work working on screen almost perfectly to the point where I always recount the point of watching The Green Mile in the cinema and being able to go for a toilet break and know exactly what was coming next because <laughs> it was so tight to what happened in the book and it was like so it's like I knew I wouldn't miss too much and ended up being right so it's like great like that but you know I King is not, you know, faultless, he's not flawless, and, you know, that's what I always like about his work. He has his faults and his problems, and that has fueled some of his best work sometimes. And it shows, you know, he has had, like, wave after wave of popularity, just as it seems like he's faded out of the, the limelight. He, he's up again with another adaptation of his work, or he's got another book coming out, and of any author I've ever read, you know, I've read the most of his books, you know, it's like, and... Ever since uh, reading it, which you know is like you know, my, my de facto favorite book ever, to the point that I destroyed my original copy with from overreading, <laughs> you know, and had to buy a new one. For Flanagan to come in and get it so right is important. But like I said, here he's being a little more ambitious. You know, it's like with Gerald's game, it's an easier one to do, you know, because it has that short story style to it. Where you know it it works for a movie and he follows that fairly well and it's does work and here you know as we said he's tackling kubrick he's tackling king and you know, past and present in terms of doing it and it's genuinely amazing that he does the job he does and like i said i get that depending on what angle you come in at with this film that it may be annoying or dull or you know not what you expected because you have those different perspectives you're coming from. You know, if it had been straight, we'll ignore Kubrick's film and just make our own. You'd understand maybe, but and I don't think it would work as well. It definitely wouldn't. And I think something that I really picked up on in this most recent rewatch of the director's cut is how unalienating the film feels to people that maybe are not the most hardcore fans of The Shining, or maybe they're not even super familiar with it, right? I mean, it obviously it is a sequel, but the reality is, is that 
some of the marketing issues that this movie had when it came out was is that it the title the acting title is Doctor Sleep, but it's a sequel to The Shining and how many people outside of like hardcore King fans or hardcore horror fans, what does Dr. Sleep mean to them? Yeah. Right. It like, it's this idea that if, Oh, if they had included the shining to Dr. Sleep, this movie probably would have had more success in theater. Right. This is not saying like it, it is not a phenomenal film, but just the idea in box office numbers. Right. And so I think that it's very interesting. It's a case where there's a possibility some people could have stumbled into this movie and been like, oh, I don't know anything about The Shining. I don't even know it's related to that. And yet this movie tells you everything you need to know about The Shining and the events and you have enough background that what happens in the film doesn't feel alienating. If anything, it feels inclusive to people that are stumbling into Doctor Sleep, but also there's enough moments in there that cater to fans of the series, fans of King, to the degree that while newcomers might not pick up on those moments, they still don't feel like, oh, I'm being left out of the significance of something, or I feel like I'm just missing what is going on behind the behind the scenes or the elements of this that really make it gel with the original film. It's one of those things where I was like, it just shows that Flanagan's love for King's world, The Shining, obviously Dr. Sleep, but also just his sensibility as a horror filmmaker. This is a film that, like, when I saw this originally, I hadn't watched The Shining in probably 10 years before that, just because, for whatever reason. And yet, I was able to sit through this movie and I felt like I was sort of, hadn't missed a beat. I felt like I was given just enough that, oh, okay, should I have gone back and watched The Shining previously? Of course, but because I am me, I managed not to. But then it made me want to go back and rewatch The Shining, which then, of course, gave me even more of an appreciation for Dr. Sleep. But it wasn't like I was sitting in the theater being like, hmm, I feel like I'm missing a piece of this, or I feel like this movie is incomplete without watching it with uh, The Shining beforehand. So it was a very interesting balance for me, and especially on the rewatch of getting to watch the director's cut and just seeing how well Flanagan is able to flesh out the narrative that was in the theatrical version in a way that doesn't feel like it is padding or it doesn't feel like a director kind of just being like, oh, this scene would be better if it was longer. Every minute that's added feels significant overall. And it just complements the world of The Shining, but also just in terms of Dr. Sleep being independent from The Shining, just the way in which they really sort of expand upon key moments that make it feel like this sort of dark fantasy odyssey almost in a way that is incredibly satisfying. Yeah, and they change certain aspects which this is the the bold thing that Flanagan does is whereas he could have made it more like King you know he doubled down on the Kubrick world by making that finale more to do with Kubrick's vision you know than the book does you know in, mm. in setting it like it, they do and having all these callbacks to the Overlook and stuff like that I especially you know I know this is more likely because you know time and patience uh, that, that recreating something that once was is always going to be slightly imperfect when you do it you're going to notice differences because you, especially with the shining for me because you know it, it's a, a formative film in, in terms of my horror upbringing and the, you know there are aspects of this film where you look at like um for, for example, the, the, the gold room sign outside the bar, 
I always pick up on the fact that the uh, typeface is smaller than it is in the original. You know, the, the way they frame characters that were in that film, obviously with different actors, you know, like uh, he, you know, Flanagan gets a few of his favorites back to play certain people like uh, Henry Thomas, you know, old Elliot from E.T. Being <laughs> being Jack Torrance, you know, for, in ghost form. I like to attribute it to the idea that that's just Danny's sort of swimmy memory of how things were. You know, that people don't look like they did once, but it's kind of the same. And there's this sort of, it's almost like a continuation of what Kubrick did in terms of how that set was made and how it wasn't quite, uh, you know, real and how it didn't make sense in, in how the, the, the hotel structure worked out. In that, you know, this memory of the hotel isn't quite how he remembers it, but enough that. You know, you watching it gets that it is still that place, that it's still like that. But, you know, being an adult, you remember things differently from your childhood than you probably did when you were younger. You know, you don't have that sort of uh, vivid memory quite like you did. So, yeah, I like to think that those sort of callbacks and uh, where they had to use those you know, other actors, obviously, is that, you know, it's just him remembering people differently, especially because, you know, he's uh, been on this odyssey of, of drinking constantly to sort of blot out his past. I really love that interpretation of her, that sort of examination of it, because that really fuels the film's overall theme, which is like trauma, right? And unresolved trauma and seeing how, and this is something that I think is really, really fleshed out well in the director's cut with that extra time, which kind of just speaks to Flanagan's sort of economical use of time and ensuring that no extra moment feels like padding. But I mean, the way that the movie opens up, we get a brief callback to Danny in the Overlook as a child biking as he did. And then to uh, room 237 and seeing the, the rotting woman in there like, OK, my greatest fear going into the film was that this was going to rest too heavily on the laurels of one of the most famous horror movies ever made. Right. That's the initial fear for anything is that, OK, it's going to be lots of callbacks to the Overlook and whatnot, and we're going to get all these nods to it. And it's going to almost outshadow the story of Dr. Sleep in and of itself. But that never happens. And Flanagan very smartly bookends the film with the return to the Overlook. Mm -hmm. We do get, of course, a couple of callbacks that are brief scenes at the Overlook. The intro I just mentioned. Also, when the Overlook begins to wake up, there's that scene where the uh, bar starts lighting up and then you see that glass of whiskey that's poured that's on the counter, right? So we do get these brief moments and the rotting woman shows up. But the film is very, very precise in showing us what Danny and his what and his mother's... Whoa, Freudian slip there. <laughs> Danny and his mother's... Uh, relationship is like after surviving Jack Torrance in the Overlook. We see how it's affected them and it's not this sort of like bubbly, oh, the past is the past. We see these two very tra traumatized and haunted people and it, the way in which we explore that and having the flashback where Dick Halloran comes back and talks to Danny as a boy and everything and kind of explaining more to him about the powers that he has, the shining itself, yeah. how he himself was a victim of an abusive, I believe it was an uncle in his case. Mm. And that scene, initially that little detail might seem somewhat inconsequential, but I find that the director's cut, it fleshes that out to the degree where it shows Dick Halloran is not speaking as an exposition mouthpiece. He's speaking from experience in a lot of ways and his ability to relate to Doc and his ability to kind of shepherd him down this 
very confusing and still very traumatic past of his and powers. And there's something really special in that relationship that I love so much. And I love that. And granted, I haven't read the novel, but I love that we get more than one scene with Dick Halloran again, because my least favorite part of Kubrick's film is that he kills off that character. And it's a character that I love. And so to see, to get to multiple scenes with him and it not being like this 30 second nod where, oh, he shows up and then he disappears. We get substantial dialogue from him and showing his mentoring of Danny. That's one of my favorite elements of the entire movie. And it just shows Flanagan's love for the universe and the characters and really giving them their, as it were, shine. Yeah, and you know, to, to say with the book obviously being different and that he, he survives, he is there in the beginning of the scene. Plays out pretty much the same. But, you know, he's actually living at that point when, when he has that conversation. And, yeah, it's just one of those things where, you know, much like the end, they're sort of deviating from the book because of trying to incorporate what Kubrick did, you know, and that, that's, that's fair enough. You, you understand why. It shows, again, that Flanagan appreciates King's ideas more because he tries to incorporate them even where... Kubrick story might contradict them. You know? That whole interaction between Doc and um, and Dick really reinforces his relationship with Abra, and it fuels more of the reason for why he feels compelled to help her and initially uh, fighting off the True Knot or defeating them in the long run. I mean, in the theatrical version, I wouldn't say that it feels rushed, but the director's cut, it feels perfect in establishing the relationships of these characters, the motivation, the inevitable build up to that, right? Because Doc is very sort of like, maybe I should revert back to where I am, keep my head down, potentially end up drinking again, which in the long run we know would be um, probably his undoing yeah. in a lot of ways. And I find that just that added time, it allows all of these elements that are fantastic in the theatrical version to really flourish into something special that feel organic in a way that it just so seamlessly bleeds through the entire film that it's one of those movies where it's like, okay, it's almost three hours long or it is three hours long. And it doesn't feel that way because I'm so engrossed in the relationships with the characters. And then of course, by the time you get to the finale, it's like, oh shit, we get to go back to the overlook and we get to kind of like revel in that nostalgia. And yet that nostalgia that we're exploring is done so in Flanagan's own creative voice. And he's able to expand on these things and bring them to life in a way that it doesn't just feel like they're kind of, he's kind of resting on the laurels of past successes, which again is my fear whenever they sort of want to dig up an, uh, a franchise that has been dormant for so long. And of course, like it's probably the most pop culture, pop culturally referenced horror film almost of all time. And so the fear for me naturally is that it's like, oh, okay, we're going to get the twins and all these different things just over and over and over and over. But Flanagan is such a smart filmmaker and so economical in his sort of exploring each of the storylines, each of the characters, and filling it with enough of King's voice, enough of Kubrick's lens, but he never forgets to put his own touch on everything. Absolutely. And I think that's so important. Yeah, absolutely. He's constantly, as much as uh, the homage is there to how Kubrick does things, and it's mostly in the musical choices, like the old heartbeat style soundtrack is there from, from The Shining. That, that you know, that's pervades throughout the film. But 
the way it's shot generally, apart from the aerial shots uh, that mimic when they drive up in the beginning of The Shining, which you have a little bit of that at the beginning, a little bit later when they're going up during the snowstorm. Otherwise, it's very much Flanagan style, you know, in his way of doing things. It is undeniably his film uh, at the end of the day. And maybe that takes a little away from it when you get towards the end and it does start to become a bit of a love-in for Kubrick's film. And you know, they maybe overdo the whole Overlook thing a little bit. And it becomes a superhero movie, which, you know, to be fair, Doctor Sleep as a book is less about horror and more about, you know, the, the themes you see in the film, you know, and how Danny is... Uh, having a redemption arc from and trying to not be like his father. Yeah, I always uh, describe the movie to my friends that maybe aren't familiar with The Shining or they're just not the biggest horror fans. I always describe it to them as it being like the closest thing to a Justice League dark movie that we'd get, mm. right? This idea where it's like, okay, there's these people with powers. It's grounded enough so bar one particular scene, people aren't flying around or throwing heavy <laughs> objects at one another, right? It is somewhat grounded a little bit, but then you also have these like Western style shootout scenes at the back end of the film, which I love because it's so random, but at the same time, it's executed on in a way that I'm not expecting from somebody like Flanagan who doesn't have a history with action scenes. And yeah. so that was like a nice little surprise at the end of the movie. But I think even in visiting the Overlook and yeah, they do recreate some of the scenes from the original film. I still like how you notice just enough of his little touches, right? They still, it might be similar steps that Jack Torrance himself took throughout the Overlook Hotel yeah. and these things, but it still feels Flanagan to me in the sense that he changes just enough so that way it doesn't feel like you're like, okay, you couldn't think of anything more original here than just like returning to what has worked in the past, right? I think whether it's something as simple as the soundtrack, like you said, or the way in which he changes the perspective of the lens. Yeah. I think in one point there's a higher lens that observes uh, Doc walking through the halls again where his father was, or even like the lights turning on as soon as he steps under them. Yeah. Like just little stylistic touches like that go a long way for me in fueling those moments that are obviously the groundwork is nostalgia for the original. But at the same time, Flanagan does just enough that it doesn't feel like it is just cashing in on the past in a way that if, again, if it had been maybe a lesser filmmaker or something to that extent, it might've just felt sort of like, okay, you're just trying to do Kubrick, which in the end of the day is not going to work out for you. Yeah, I mean, a good example actually is um, misinterpreting the nostalgia for The Shining in another film is in Ready Player One, which takes uh, its little uh, moment from The Shining, much like it does many other moments in that film where it takes a pop culture thing and just uses it as a prop. And while the initial reaction is, oh, surprise, they use this, that's cool, like that. When you think about it in the long run, it really doesn't add anything. You know, it, it, <laughs> it's a very token sort of use of, of what it can be. and. As you say, in many filmmakers' cases, that's what we would have got, you know, because that's what the studio is going to demand. It's like, oh, we just want a film that sort of touches base with this sort of thing, this sort of thing. And that's fine. I get that. That's how they want to sell stuff. It's just annoying when you, you could do so much better. I mean, no one's immune from it. Ridley Scott 
did it to his own bloody creation with alien you know with alien covenant you know he he went and bastardized the very thing he made um so it's again just props to flanagan for understanding so well that you know he can have the balls to try and I mean, he's not emulating Kubrick in terms of style because Christ, he knows himself. You know, he's a relatively humble filmmaker by comparison. He he's he knows what he likes. He knows what he can do. He's not striving for that kind of perfection. He's not going to traumatize an actress for life just because uh, <laughs> he wants to get the right shot. Um, yeah. So you know, he that bleeds into how he does this and while that doesn't make quite as an effective uh film you know that makes the shining so iconic you know and makes it what it is but it took a lot of suffering and a lot of pain and to to get it to that point and to you know pretty much ignore the source material in a lot of ways uh and what i like about uh dr sleep is it takes that and drags King's original uh, ideas back into that, you know, like mm. the alcoholism is really not touched upon that much in Shining. It's um, in Kubrick's The Shining. It's really more about that. Oh well, Jack Nicholson's evil. That's it. You know, it's like he succumbed too easily to it. That's it. Done. 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 Like that. Um, whereas this is very much a case of like you are destined to be in this cycle of uh, violence and regret if you, if you don't change your ways which i think comes across very well later in the film when he does essentially face up to his father you know it, it, at the bar you know even it's as much as it's all this whole fan service thing of being a, a direct mimic of the conversation jack has with the with the previous bartender in The Shining, it also has this uh, reckoning for Danny and his father, where he can sort of tell him the things he could never tell him because of you know, his demise, and, and it sort of yeah, it does everything for the film going on. I mean, again, it could have been just a very sort of black and white, like you had said, this. Well, he succumbed to alcoholism, so he was weak, or something like that on the surface, but. Or it could have been Flanagan just being like, hey, it'd be cool if we could recreate that scene from the original. And yet the human element is so present throughout the entire film that the lead up to that feels very earned. And it takes on this reckoning, as you so eloquently put it, like this reckoning moment where he gets to say to his father all these things that he wanted to in a lot of ways. Yeah. And there, the AA speech that he gives, I find really stood out to me on this most recent rewatch, this idea that he talks about his drinking the drinking and the rage was like the only way to connect with the memory of his father. And it shows that that was the deep root of not only his trauma, but that was like the relationship he had with his father in yeah. a lot of ways. And that stood out to me so much as Flanagan, again, making sure that people are front and center. It's not, well, I've, I've been traumatized, so I'm going to drink a lot to try to forget, which, okay, that's what every single filmmaker that's ever had alcoholic characters has touched upon and been the root of. But just that little line of dialogue, it really brings out the human in Doc in a lot of ways, in the sense that, hey, he's doing these things, there's a reason for it. It's not just to forget. Like how many times have we had to listen to, oh, I wanna forget, so I'm gonna drink. Okay, 
we've had characters in the past do that. But him saying like it, this violence and this self-destructive behavior is a way to connect with something that I was never able to connect with in a way and something, a connection I long for, even if at the end of the day, it was not the uh, most healthy of connections. I think it just shows it shows that people are a lot deeper than sort of what you see on the surface. And Flanagan always has a thoughtful approach to everything that he touches. And you're bringing up Hush at the very beginning. I mean, again, if it had been a lesser filmmaker, it would have been, it would have felt exploitive to have the victim be death. Yeah. Whereas Flanagan's handling of it makes it a strength in some ways, and it makes her persevere in spite of being deaf, right? This idea that had it been another filmmaker would have been this idea that they would have not have handled it as tactfully. They would have used her disability and portrayed it as more of a crutch than rather her ability to persevere. Or be or be a source of villainy. If you think of Don't Breathe, which uh, takes blindness and makes it, you know, this whole villainous thing, which is apparently turning into a, a heroic thing for the next one. Quite how you go heroic from the end for that character in the previous film, I don't know, but Anyway, <laughs> um, yeah, and with the alcoholism, they recreate something from the book early on that is uh, maybe not as effective as the book because the book really goes into some, you know, King does some fantastically seedy detail in it. But um, when Danny awakens in a woman's bed and finds himself at this low point, recollecting memories of the night before where he got into a fight, and you know the mother is clearly you know an unfit mother and it turns out and he goes to steal money from her and then the child comes out with this soiled nappy and in a horrible state again king describes this scene in such a way that is thoroughly unpleasant it just puts you right in the the moment you know of how bleak and desolate danny's life is now that this is normal and he's still contemplating stealing money from this person because he can justify it you know and that she stole from him probably it was like these no he has no real proof or memory uh, with everything that happened it's horrid you know it's a horrid horrid thing and i think you know flanagan rams it home by having the later thing where he reveals that they've you know passed away you know from ignorance and like and he feels so guilty and responsible for that. It sort of pushes him further into helping uh, Abra properly and caring for Abra. Such an effective part of the book, and it, it as much as difficult to sort of translate. He, again, Flanagan does a pretty decent job uh, at making it a key moment in, in Danny's character. Yeah, and I think again, it just speaks to while that's in the theatrical version. I think at the same time, though, like having the added time to the runtime of the film, it makes his decision to help Abra feel that much more organic or that much more formulative over time. Mm. It doesn't feel like an immediate thing. I think I did go back and rewatch the theatrical version at one point after seeing the director's cut. And in that loss of whatever it is, 25 or 30 minutes, it does feel like he comes around a lot sooner. Yeah. And I find that fleshing out not only his talks with, with Dick Halloran when he appears, but also his time at the hospice, fleshing out and showing the impact that his shining ability has on the patients and giving them comfort and sharing an intimate moment with these people. It really does show the good in The Shining, in addition to showing potentially that cats also have The Shining in yeah. them, um, <laughs> some of them. But I just love that 
that we get so many human moments that are crossed with so many horrifying moments, like when that woman and her uh, zombie baby at that point appear in his bed later on and finding out, oh, they had both perished. I mean, these are a series of events that in the director's cut are lined up in a way that it feels like this is the natural decision for him to make. It doesn't feel like a plot device. It doesn't feel like, oh, you know, he's got to help her at some point. It feels like it is a learned or a, yeah, a learned and then an accepted role that he has to take. He has to be her shepherd as Dick Halloran was for her. And I think that that is such an important part to the overall movie that gives it this sort of dark fantasy odyssey feel to the entire thing that just, it it holds up, or again, it makes me want to go back and read the novel, which I've never read. So it would be a first time <laughs> read of Dr. Sleep for me. But it's one of those things where it's like, if this is as quality as Flanagan could make it. I'm, I want those little details that you can only do in a book, right? Yeah. You said that scene is made so much more, it's disturbing when he sees the dead woman and the zombie baby, of course, but those little details I feel would just make it that much more real and that much more that he, this is the only decision that he can make based on his experiences. Yeah, uh, this is just, and um, there are other key points that uh, Flanagan recreates quite well. Uh, namely, uh, Rose the Hat. Uh, I mean, mm. to talk about this film, to get this far into this podcast and not talk about Rose the Hat <laughs> seems odd. But I, I, I thought we had to get through the other parts first because, absolutely, you know, in the book alone, already this you know enigmatic threat, this otherworldly being, almost uh, that feels like a, the first real difference to you know, the other side of the shining if you will it's this very uh physical interpretation of the what the shining is and what the the ghosts of the overlook were and uh, two things really work well i think with this film in in that regard is that rebecca ferguson is perfect uh, she does such an amazing job in in making rose the hat the right kind of rose that and establishing it in two scene two key scenes in the entire film really make it for her character i mean the initial one we get with her with taking that girl away you know without ever showing anything in that scene they establish her menace and her you know her persuasive attitude and how yeah you, know, you can still see she's dangerous you know it's like you're seeing uh a tiny fish it, just in front of a shark, you know, it, it feels like that. It, you know that the trouble is coming, but you know that that little fish doesn't know that it's going to get eaten. You know, it, it just, it's horrifying to think of that at that point. But later, at, where you have the baseball kid, uh, played by Jacob Tremblay, you know, who's an established child actor, you know, in an Oscar-winning films, you know, like Room, and uh, to a lesser extent, the, the not Oscar-winning Predator, which is still good, <laughs> but you know, um, he's, you know, you, you put a kid of that stature in the film and then getting killed off so brutally and so nastily, you know, it's like the way they do that it, it really drives home how nasty and how uncaring and how un inhuman the, the true not are 
you know, and especially Rose the Hurt, who, who gleefully accepts the idea of having to kill children to, to get what they want, you know, and it's that's a hard thing to do, I think, as a role. And I think it, it is full credit to Rebecca Ferguson for doing it so well and just playing it off in a way that isn't hammy or stupid or like, you know, because it could easily have been this melodramatic villain. And it's like, while she does sort of play up to the camera and really make it this big thing and this big ego, it makes sense because, you know, she's just, creature effectively that has lived for hundreds of years and she thinks she's better than any human being being there is so preying on kids is sport you know for them and it shows throughout and her arrogance is a key part of what makes her a compelling character is it you're rooting for her to get beaten you know and when abra outwits her it's such a satisfying moment you know that she gets uh, landed on her ass as she does and and then later it makes you know when she's really just saying well fuck that then we're gonna i'm gonna i'm gonna go at you it, it makes that confrontation all the more compulsive to watch you know it's i, th- I don't think it gets talked about enough uh, as a uh, a great horror performance. I think she is uh, given a fantastic account of that character. And, you know, there have been plenty of actors who have done right by King characters, you know, especially villains. You know, over the years, you, Jack Nicholson being one, you know, and, uh, you know, you think think of In Misery with Kathy Bates and that. But, Rebecca Ferguson should honestly be up there in terms of representing King villains because it, she does some nasty stuff. She is uh, the right kind of alluringly nasty. You know, it, it, it works so well. It, I just it astounds me. You know, because even though you know, that character is great in the book and has a lot of those features to carry that to the big screen is uh, impressive, to say the least. Yeah, I think the best way to put it is like she's enchantingly sinister both in her appearance, but also in the sort of flowerly way that she is able to really draw people in, right? That first instance being the most representative of that, I think, in that she is kind of like luring this little girl in and trying to selling her on magic and then flowers, of course, and then she has that sinister line where it's like, Honey, it's the special ones that take the best. And then all the true not people kind of like swarm her, which is a very disturbing moment without showing anything, right? It's this idea that she's this little girl is being preyed upon by this gang of roving, uh, (laughs) roving otherworldly beings at this point, um, which we'll learn you learn later. But I think just the nastiness is so key in really signifying that these people are so indifferent to human beings because they've been around for so long. I think that comes across really, really well in that, again, they're so unflinching in not only hurting children, hurting both boys and girls, but it's this idea that they're not only just hurting them, they're consuming their essence, essentially. And that is so disturbing. And of course, Flanagan, in the way that he is able to, he's able to really make a physical manifestation of that in a way that does not feel overly 
say like overly gory or maybe just he's not super concerned with shocking with graphic content it's more about the reality of you're gonna see some blood but it's tied to a child yeah. right it's this idea that he's able to take to make scenes very disturbing and violent without ever taking it to the degree where it's like i need to stop watching i had a conversation recently with somebody about gerald's game yeah and we had a similar a similar point about Flanagan's use of violence and graphic content is so sparingly used, but when he uses it, it's very memorable. Very much so, yeah. I almost related to somebody like um, Jeremy Solaner, who does uh, Green Room, uh, Blue Ruin yeah. in these movies, and his movies are obviously not horror, but the way he approaches violence feels very horror in that it's very reserved, but when it happens, you, me you remember it. Yeah. There's no way you leave one of his movies and you forget a moment of violence. And I feel that way about uh, Mike Flanagan, whether it's kind of this now tying into a uh, conversation you and I had about Resident Evil Village not too long ago, but his fascination with like fucking up people's hands. Yeah. <laughs> like Gerald's game, the degloving, and then of course in Doctor Sleep, like Rose the Hat, she gets her hand stuck in the filing cabinet, which is basically a representation of uh, Abra's mind, and then basically has to rip her hand out and then she just shreds her hand. And so that's probably like two of three moments of graphic violence in the film, but it is goddamn memorable and it is just as terrifying. And it's satisfying because it's like, you've seen this woman expertly and uh, her performance is again, like of a caliber that it should be talked about far more frequently than it is. But it, she's so good at making you hate her yeah. that it feels satisfying when it's like, oh, okay, she finally got hers after what she did to quote unquote, the baseball boy, she finally got hers to a certain extent. And I think that that's a combination of Rebecca Ferguson's performance, but it's also Flanagan smartly being like, we're going to build up to these moments in a way there's a greater significance than it just being like, Oh, character got hurt. They got, they shredded their hand to a certain degree, or there's graphic content or something like that. He just has such a, everything feels methodical in the way that yeah. he approaches everything. Had any of those moments been too early or too far back, or it feels like just out of place enough, they would not have had the same significance, I think, that they do in the exact moment that they're placed in the film. Yeah. And to sort of further elaborate, um, as much as we can talk about Rebecca Ferguson, then you have to talk about Abra herself. You know, it's uh, a whole other thing. It's the cat and mouse game that they go between in their mind. Uh, is a fun part of the film you know a fun part of the book too it is just the constant outsmarting of her um i said kylie curran who plays uh, abra in the film uh, is again a perfect representation of the book character for me you know she's she gets it you know she gets what she's supposed to be and she's just over eager kid that you know wants to be accepted for what she has and she finally has a chance to use her the powers that she's been given for good you know and you know, rather than be told not to do it not not you know, keep them secret keep them hidden and here she comes up against an actual adversary adversary and she is so into it you know to to a fault that it, it it's such a fascinating watch you know seeing especially as you were saying the aforementioned thing where um rosa ha has to skin her hand to get out of abra's mind trap you know it's like it's wonderfully executed that, that you know she just 
manages to set this little trap and do that. It's yeah, it it's the right mix with Paddy Curran that she makes it uh there's innocence there, but also this knowing that comes from having that power where you know she can read thoughts and know what people are thinking and how they're feeling. Uh, she's old before her time, but still very much a child. And, it, and you can see exactly why Danny resonates with that and why he wants to protect her because he's been there, you know. He's a perfect uh, a mentee for the mentor. And I think also not to keep harping on the length of the film, but I feel that the way that Flanagan interweaves all of these narratives, right? The true not yeah. Doc and then Abra you really feel like you're seeing her grow up essentially and you are becoming more and more invested in her because you've seen her as a child and realizing, hey, I'm different. I'm, I'm, uh, I can outwit and outperform the magician that shows up as my fifth, uh, five-year-old birthday or whatever. Yeah. But then you get to see her really come into those powers in a way that feels formative in terms of The Shining, right? And she doesn't have all of that trauma that Doc did, right? It's an interesting parallel between their upbringings and the way in which they use their powers and how frightening the powers are for them based on their upbringing, right? Yeah. When Doc, he is, he, his upbringing with the powers seems to be much more traumatic because of course he grew up in an abusive household. Whereas Abra has two loving parents and she plays the piano. She makes the silverware fly into the ceiling and it doesn't feel like a burden, no. which if anything, Doc almost has an advantage at that point because the powers are something that he's scared of. So he's less, he is the one that says, hey, we should keep our heads down. Whereas Abra has, of course, this comes with her age and being a child. She has more naivete in terms of like how she should use her powers and how we have to go after this. Whereas she doesn't realize the real world implications, which clearly Doc does even from a young age, even if he had not necessarily had a parent die at that point, up, in, up before obviously going to the Overlook, he still lives in a world where violence is a factor. Violence from people that you love is a factor, which just makes him more primed to suffer trauma, but to also have a more a more understanding of the world. The world is not a, always the most embracing of places. And I think that comparing the contrast between their two upbringings with the shining powers, it does make for the perfect blend of a mentor and a mentee. And it's, a uh, relationship that I think is definitely one of the stronger within the course of the film, but also, like you said, her performance is fantastic. That moment when she has um, been kidnapped by Crow Daddy and basically Doc speaks through her, mm. I think is one of her the strongest performances she gives because it's so convincing. It's they're not doing there is some editing, of course, to the way her voice sounds, but there's enough of her in that moment that she sells it so well that it is almost frightening how well she sells that, that she is Doc in this child's body. And just with his knowledge and planning, but at the same time with her willingness to really step to the true knot and to be like, okay, these are a group of people we can't be afraid of anymore. We need to go to them, bring the fight to them. Yeah, it is um, amazing how confident she can be you know, when she does that sort of stuff. and. Again, it just speaks. I think uh, Vanagan especially works best with female actors. Uh, he's proved that throughout, you know, with Hush, with Gerald's Game, with Haunting a Hill House, you know, with this 
or even OBJ Seeds of Evil, it, it, all of those had really strong female performances. He gets it so well, you know, it, or he, he frames it so well, you know, he has the right people around him to make it work. And it, this is further proof of that, you know, it's just like zenith of that, you know, such a confident young actor in Kylie Curran to take on a role like that and yeah it's astounding to think like that I mean as we said there are you know more flamboyant more uh, strong appearances in this film and the likes of Rebecca Ferguson's Rose the Hat but she holds her own so well uh, for what she's given and it's it's very much down to Flanagan's experience with his previous films. You know, that you know, he gets this out of her. Flanagan always, his directing and his writing feel indicative of a director that is either writing or directing people as people. Yeah. Which sounds very simplistic, but it, it, it everything that he does, it feels like he is just doing it at, with thinking of the character first and making a character personable. And it's almost like he doesn't think about this is a female or a male character, if that makes sense. Yeah. It's this idea that this is going to be a character that stands on their own and serves a purpose regardless of if they're male or female, which I don't think is a coincidence considering all a majority of his films, they have such strong female characters, but his ability to just write them like they're any other character. Whereas sometimes I feel like some filmmakers, it's like, oh, I have to write this as a male character. I have to write this as a female character, which then brings out some of these tropes that we are often complaining about in media, yeah. right? This sort of like role representation. Whereas uh, Rose the Hat, like she is a very strong and sinister and enchantingly gorgeous, but also like seductive with language in a way that had he tried to write her as just like a seductive female character, there might've been more, not that I think this is his temperament as a writer or as a director, but just in general, like yeah. if somebody had read King's novel other than Flanagan, they might lean more into the sexuality of that character more. Whereas Flanagan, he's like, okay, this is a person who obviously sexuality is a part of them and she uses it, but it's never in a way that feels like it is just egregious or it's trying to evoke a reaction out of somebody. She's just enchantingly seductive enough with her sexuality that it draws somebody in, but it's never the full swath of who she is and she's not defined by that and that's so key i think it's such a really great point because the book um very much does establish a relationship between rose the hat and the girl she brings in um whose name escapes me right there snake by snake by, yeah snake by andy yeah it's yeah. like the, the the book establishes them having a relationship you know in between there so you know it's kind of testament it feels more natural the way Flanagan does it, you know, to the way um, King does it, because I think if you'd added that to the screen, it does just make her more of a succubus, you know, and, and like that. It, it would have been not right for the way they were portraying her on screen. We should talk a little bit more about the finale and that triumphant return to the Overlook and how that is such a nostalgia-laced moment, but I just love how Flanagan is able to take us back to a familiar place and it feels like a combination of both King's vision, because of course of how yeah. Dr. Sleep ends with how he originally wanted The Shining to end, 
but then it also mixes in a little bit of Kubrick. So I'm curious how you find the conclusion of Dr. Sleep and returning to the Overlook. Do you feel like it's a decent balance of all three voices or do you find that it maybe gravitates more towards one over the other? I think it does uh, put the correction across uh, Sean Kubrick's vision then to make it more like Kings, uh, as you said, um, in how it, it culminates. But as I said earlier, I think it goes a little overboard in doing too much. Uh, it feels a bit Ghostbusters too, you know, in, in terms of sort of unleashing the beasts you had in the first film. <sighs> you know, it, it works in the overall scheme of things because outside of Abra's story, you were dealing with Danny's trauma, you know, and how he is bottled all this, literally not so much bottled it up, but you know, he has boxed it up, you know, all his traumas from the Overlook. And now he's here at a place where he, he's effectively made peace with the idea that he's saving this girl and he's trying to end this cycle you know with the over with the overlook so he feels like he can unleash it all you know and get out of the way and resolve the problem at hand but uh you know it, it doesn't quite work out for him you know in the way he'd wanted but you know abra produced to save the day and uh be the strong hand that he never was you know and then maybe he believes that you know, I think uh, he believed that all along that she would be able to sort of trick anything that sort of took over him from the Overlook to sort of end it. And it, hence why, you know, they, they rig the boiler to begin with. You know, on a rewatch, I don't know that I necessarily need the possession of him. No. I don't know that I necess I'd necessarily need that. And that might be the only instance in the film that I find to be overly egregious in terms of like rekindling the past mm. i don't i think that there's enough in the film for a majority of those scenes that they, flanagan's able to put his spin on it like i said that scene i could probably do without i do really really like the ending to the or the the pre-ending to the film with the boiler scene right yeah. and then he gets this moment where it's a young doc talking with his mother again and they have this kind of like warm embrace when he inevitably blows up and burns up in all of this and then I really like the way that the film is capped off after that, this idea that Abra is still able to communicate with the now deceased Doc through the power of the Shining. Yeah. And he now has this, still has this, um, now it's a, a supernatural, furthermore supernatural or uh, otherworldly relationship with him now that he's passed on and has that same mentor-mentee relationship that he had with Dick Halloran. And that's a really roundabout way that I love because he gets closure. He gets to end that tra that trauma cycle and whatnot. And he also got to help a child escape a different type of cycle. Yeah. Or maybe rather, maybe this is more a, uh, a her just getting to outlive people that were hunting her and whatnot. I don't know if it's necessarily a cycle, but he was able to pay it forward. Essentially, he took the words that Dick Halloran told him and essentially giving him that uh, with great power comes great responsibility. He talks about how the why doesn't matter. It's all about what you do with it and whatnot. And I think that it's so key that they can still have that relationship even after he's passed on and found peace. Yeah. Because now she gets to have peace. It doesn't. It doesn't end the movie in a. Well, 
I guess it is a traumatic event, all this shit. There's no way that she is not somewhat scarred yeah. by it all. But it, the idea that like this person that came into her life suddenly that had such a profound effect is now just gone. It gives the movie somewhat of an uplifting ending. This idea that she still has some communication with this person who became essentially, who became Uncle Dan, yeah. right? This idea, he became a family member essentially. So I don't know, it would have been a little more bittersweet if she had not been able to communicate with him after he dies, just because of the sacrifice he made, of course she gets to live, but also he's not completely gone. Yeah. Somewhat gone, but not completely gone. And I think that again is planning and thinking about characters and their emotions first, because otherwise she's just gonna be even more traumatized and she probably already is to some extent. It throws back to the idea that she came from a happier childhood where she understood that she had powers and she repressed them much like Danny had to you know, to please her parents but from a different angle you know Danny suppressed his power because he didn't want the anger of his father uh, whereas you know Abra does it because she doesn't want to embarrass her parents and she learns you know through this situation and her mother you know different to Danny's mother learns that you know that's how who she is and that that's part of it and you know that's why Abra then sort of confesses that, that okay I'm not gonna lie to you I was talking to Dan and you know he's a ghost and, and things like that she's doing what Danny could not in accepting that this is what she can do and she's not gonna lie about it she's not gonna hide it and uh, like Danny did and Danny did and look where it got him you know he ended up an alcoholic and tortured by everything and ultimately died for it you know it's like as much as it was for a noble cause uh, he died for it uh, but he died so that Abra could have this sort of this rewrite of that situation where she could be a happier person and more accepting, you know, accepting what she is and what power she has. And now, without the threat, the imminent threat of the true not that they had. I love that the film ends for her the way that it began for Doc, which was this idea that she sees the rotting woman, much like him, and that it's this real the reality that nothing is over just because the overlook is passed on, mm -hmm. right? But it's something that you can live with. And she has the whole, the uh, the healthy alternative way to live with it, yeah. right? She came to the realization much sooner. Pair that with her happy upbringing. She doesn't have to turn to the bottle right away like Doc yeah. did, unfortunately. And while he is very much a cautionary tale, it's nice that she's able to learn from his mistakes in a way that doesn't feel like his alcoholism is ever used as... I don't know, it just doesn't feel like Flanagan exploits his alcoholism in a way where it's just like, don't ever do that. Yeah. It's kind of just this idea that it's like, she learns that there is an alternative to being afraid. And of course, alcoholism was a byproduct of that fear and that unresolved trauma. Mm. She is just able to learn a solution to it in a way that is more healthy without it being like, don't ever do that. Cause then it just feels kind of like, is he just an alcoholic in this point just to drive that point home yeah and i think that that would almost that would do his character a disservice because again the way it's presented is it feels very real another part of that feels like it is for a spectacle or this is just a crutch we're going to give this character and it's something that 
I'm uh, impressed upon how Flanagan is just able to really take lots of real world issues and um, what could be perceived as tropes by most filmmakers. He's able to really give a grounding sense to even these dark fantasy odysseys such as uh, Dr. Sleep. Yeah, sure, because, um, you know, as much as his father was an alcoholic and that weakened him somewhat to being to succumbing to the hotel, you know, as much as I wasn't explored in Kubrick's films, that is, you know, the de facto way it was. Um, you know, he has gone through his life thinking that he's not going to be like that. He's not going to be like that. And it's true. He doesn't end up being an alcoholic because he copies what his father did. He ends up doing it because he's trying to avoid it. You know, he he comes to the same conclusion by a different trauma, you know. Jack's trauma is he feels trapped. You know, he feels like he, he rushed into a family life and he feels guilty about how he's reacted, you know, and it, it just drives him further and further and further. And being at the Overlook just exacerbates that situation. You know, the, the whole original Shining Tale is that. It, it's less a ghost story, it's more a story of, of addiction. You know, and how in the wrong circumstances it could try uh, everyone away, you know. And there is no one key way of that happening. And that's Dr. Sleep's story, you know, is that uh, Danny thinks he can get away from that by doing what he's told by Dick to lock the ghosts away, but it isasn't enough. you know he wants to dull that power. He doesn't want to ever have to interact with any of these ghosts again. and the only way he knows how from his limited life experience because of the way everything that's happened with his father and his mother is to drink you know because it's the only thing that helps the minute something helps in, in terms of addiction, that's it that's your crutch that is what makes it work for you and it that that happens and he is very much limited by that and he tries his best to get out of it and abra really does help you know and as well as sorting his life out you know as he does and he gets so close to sort of succumbing to that uh addiction late on in the film and uh giving in to the whole thing and he doesn't it's a good allegory for how addiction could be especially alcoholism you know it, it, while it's not it is surface level in a lot of ways it is uh, a really well done thing and how they manage it and i think i know we praised you know the female performances so far in this film but uh you mcgregor you know i think really well cast here he, he is mm. I, I wasn't sure about that. I had to be certain that. Um, but when you get into the film and how he acts about everything and how he does it, he really does just uh, give this sad sack alcoholic with this huge trauma some real levity. You know, he, he really mm -hmm. makes it something. And, and again, it's whether you call that melodrama or whatever, he knows. Hugh McGregor, you know, people used to take the piss out of his Obi-Wan Kenobi performance, you know, back in the day. And yet, 
nowadays people clamor for it you know they want it they want to do it again he is doing it again you know Hugh McGregor is great and you know his breakout role was in Trainspotting which is a movie mm -hmm. about addiction this is right. perfect for him you know he knows how to do that sort of thing you know he, he did it so well there and even in the sequel to that and, and here he, he he is so good at pervading this sort of sad sack real life sort of addict you know and it just shows that you know not every addict is totally tragic even though his character here is it's like they do want to break out of that cycle you know and he uh, he does that so well it's amazing yeah he dispels that myth that it's like oh they're addicts because they enjoy the benefits from or the feeling of what they are consuming mm. which is very rarely the case but it's this idea that it really dispels that notion yeah and like you said it doesn't feel like it is a I at least don't feel like it's a dramatized version or it feels like it is uh, melodramatic in that regard. The ways in which we see his stages of addiction, it all feels, again, like a natural progression to where he ends up. This idea that we see his rock bottom yeah. and it's violent and it's upsetting and it's sad. And yet we don't have to get the first 45 minutes of the movie of him doing that. No. And that comes back to Flanagan knowing how to direct certain people, but also just being a storyteller in general. This idea that those moments can be filed down to a few key instances and then move on from it. Because otherwise, it becomes, I mean, it becomes him trying to do just an addiction movie in the same vein as train spotting to the degree where we see this addiction, but it's an example throughout the entire course of the film. And that's not me taking the piss out of train spotting or anything, but it's this idea that like, addiction ties into this film in a much grander scale. Yeah. It's the core of it in a lot of ways, but it never becomes the sole focus because otherwise that would be disingenuous, obviously, to the the true volume and scale of this story. And there's so much in this film. And I feel like, you know, we've talked about, talked now for a little more than an hour, but it's this idea. It's a film with so many layers that you just feel like you've scratched the surface of it. But it's one that I think is worth talking about, worth revisiting. And it's a film that... I'm so happy fans have obviously by now have discovered it, but it's a film that is being celebrated still yeah. and as serves as the reality that people should probably uh, not judge horror, the idea of sequels to classic horror films or remakes to a certain extent in that regard, because there's um, in the right hands, they can be just as just as comparable to the original or they can be perfectly fine ways to complement them. And look, yeah, I get this right. Um, the Shining is up there in like the 50 odd movies that I consider five star movies uh, of mm -hmm. like two and a half thousand movies, whatever I've seen. You know, it was so formative. Uh, me and my brother watching that, at my uncle's, uh, seeing that bathroom scene with the old hag, you know, <laughs> it was so impactful. You know, and that movie ended up being so just. Because it's so dreamlike and unreal, you know, it ended up being such a thing. You know, it ended up being a, a major part of why I love horror, why I love Stephen King. You know, so to get to this this sequel, you know, as much as I like Flanagan's work, you know, 
I can appreciate he's not perfect like anyone, but this, he, he really did a great job in uh, mm. continuing this story. The King, you know, as much as I appreciate this for King, you know, it's like he continued this story in a way that really felt right to me and personal. And I was so happy to see it play out the way it did. And yeah, Flanagan captures it perfectly to me. You know, he captures what King had in mind for continuing that, whilst also servicing you know, a film that is iconic, uh, despite the fact that it ignores much of many, you know, many of the themes that the book had. Yeah, yes, I'll admit it is not as good as The Shining because The Shining is just what it is. You know, it is iconic. Uh, it is a zenith. It, it's up there in amongst the greatest horror films there ever are. No doubt about that. But this is so ballsy to try and emulate and continue that that it deserves so much credit for doing it, you know? And it does it so well that it, it's pretty, you know. You know, The Shining is a five five star movie. This is four and a half. You know, is that close? Yeah, and I mean, it's not a perfect movie, but Flanagan achieved the impossible. Mm. He made a more than competent, and I I mean, I think it's fantastic. And I would say it's yeah, I I would give it the same rating of four and a half. It's this idea that he did the impossible, and he was able to make something that complements, that references, and that allows his own horror voice to really flourish in a pre-existing thing in a way that doesn't take away from what was done by the author or the first filmmaker that adapted it, but his voice doesn't get lost. And I think that that's so key. And that's why I almost think it's a discredit to say, like I, like me myself had said uh, that he is the de facto Stephen King adaptator because the idea that he is adapting these works so well. He is the best person to do it, but his own voice comes through. Yeah. It's not the same as just any other, any other more than competent director that is well-versed in King's voice doing the same thing because Flanagan's style and temperament as a director does not get lost in seemingly a single frame of this. And it just stands as a testament to a fantastic film that should not be as good as it is, and yet I'm more than happy that we got a follow-up to one of the best horror films ever made. Yeah, it's a, a, like I said before, it, it really shouldn't have worked. You know, it's a novel that still divides people to this day, but uh, and you know, a lot of later King adaptations haven't worked out. Yeah, boy, this was just the best surprise. Absolutely, and I think uh, for anybody that hasn't checked out Doctor Sleep because you're hesitant about his follow-up to The Shining and whatnot. Uh, you should probably get over that and just watch probably one of the greatest uh, horror sequels ever made, in my opinion. But uh, Neil, as always, this was a pleasure to chat horror with you and especially talk Mike Flanagan for uh, Masters of Horror this month. Absolutely. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to Daily Horror Habit on your preferred streaming service and follow the show on Instagram at Daily Horror Habit and on Twitter at Daily Horror Pod for episode updates. Thanks again for listening, and I'll see you guys next time.